Well, this morning we're beginning a new journey together. This is a journey that I expect will take us through most, if not all, of the upcoming year. Journey through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm praying that this study will be very relevant, very useful in helping us understand how we can live as Christians in our contemporary world, how we can glorify God as men and women who have been called to be in the world, not of the world, to live in the light of our new and our true identity in Jesus Christ as those who are being transformed by the renewing of our mind and not being conformed to the sinful patterns of the world around us. My goal in the time that we have this morning is to introduce you to the church in Corinth, to give you a brief tour of the city, and to talk a bit about why Paul believed it was necessary to write this letter nearly 2,000 years ago, and why this letter is still so very relevant for the church today. So as we begin this new journey together, I'd ask you to turn with me to two different passages of Scripture this morning. First of all, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, where we learn something about the history, the foundation of the Corinthian church. And secondly, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we read the introduction to the epistle itself. So Acts 18, 1 Corinthians 1. We'll begin this morning with the first 17 verses of Acts 18. Hear the word of God as I read it. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves." I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now turn with me to our second text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Word of God. We thank God for this reading from His holy and inspired Word. You know, one of the things that I hated to do the most when I was a kid was to clean up my room. Even to this very day, I do not like very much dealing with a mess. Either the messes that I still make from time to time whenever I leave my books lying around the house or whenever I leave my tools lying around the house or the messes that my kids now leave around the house. I've learned over the years that sometimes we have no choice but to deal with the messes in our lives. To confront the mess head on, to clean up the mess before it grows and before the mess gets out of control. If you've ever watched that reality show on television called Hoarders, you'll know what a mess looks like when it gets out of control and takes on a life of its own. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the book that we begin studying today, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a mess. Not a messy room, not a messy house. A messy church, located in a messy city and a messy situation that had caused him more grief and more pain than any other part of his apostolic ministry. In the weeks and the months to come as we work our way through this book, we're going to see in living color how messy the Corinthian church had become in the few short years since Paul the Apostle had planted it and trained up the initial leadership. This morning I want to crack open the door a little bit and give you a glimpse of the mess that Paul was confronted with in this New Testament church. The church in Corinth was a mess, first of all, because it was being pulled apart by divisions and power struggles within the congregation, and that is the primary problem that Paul needs to deal with in the first six chapters. Secondly, This church in Corinth was plagued with moral compromise and moral vice, especially in the area of sexuality, as we're going to speak about in just a few moments. Things that were happening within the church that even the pagan Greeks outside of the church would frown upon. Rather than the Christians being ashamed of their moral laxity, their compromise with the world, the church in Corinth seems to have taken pride in their tremendous tolerance of sexual sin and moral wickedness was a church, thirdly, where the members were suing one another in the courts of law rather than working through conflict in a biblical way. As a result, they were destroying their Christian witness in the city. It was a church where people were using their Christian liberty in a way that caused their brothers and sisters to stumble and to sin, to violate their conscience on matters not central to the gospel. It was a church where certain women were attempting to usurp the authority of their husbands and to overturn gender roles within the church and within the home. It was a church where people were being greedy, refusing to share their food with one another, where some of the people were even getting drunk on the communion wine 
was a church where the spiritual gifts had devolved into utter chaos and disorder. Perhaps most troubling of all, it was a church where the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was being denied by some of the leaders and some of the members who had come under the influence of Greek Platonic philosophy. You're starting to get the picture. The church in Corinth was messed up in about every way you can imagine. It was messed up doctrinally. It was messed up ethically. It was messed up morally. It was messed up spiritually. Paul the Apostle is going to deal with this church. He's going to deal with every one of the issues I just mentioned, along with a few more issues that will pop up later on and be dealt with in a second letter, the book of 2 Corinthians, which we looked at together last week. But before the Apostle Paul rolls up his sleeves and puts himself to the task of cleaning house in Corinth, he first addresses these struggling believers in a remarkably gentle, a remarkably kind way. With the words that we just read in the opening nine verses of 1 Corinthians. We work our way this morning and next week through the introductory portion of this epistle. We are going to observe, first of all, how Paul viewed himself. And secondly, how he viewed the believers in the church, reminding all of them, and by extension, reminding all of us that we have been given a new identity, a true identity in Jesus Christ. Taking the time to read through the New Testament before, you will probably know already that Paul likes to begin his letters in the same way. First of all, with an introduction of himself, and secondly, with a word of greeting to the individual or to the church to which he was writing. This was the standard way of writing letters back in the first century. These introductory greetings give us some very valuable insights into Paul's view of himself, Paul's view of his God-ordained role within the churches of Asia Minor in Greece. Notice with me in the text, first of all, three times in the first three verses, the apostle repeats the same verb which is translated call in our English Bibles. Speaking, first of all, of his own call into the ministry. Speaking, secondly, of the reader's call to salvation. And thirdly, the way in which believers all over the world are united in a common calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus in worship. There are three calls in the opening three verses, and the first call has to do with Paul's identity as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Although Paul's self-identification here as an apostle is not unique to this letter, it does take a special significance in the book of 1 Corinthians when we realize that Paul's leadership and Paul's authority were under siege by certain members of the church. As I mentioned in our sermon last week, there was a group of false teachers who had infiltrated the church in Corinth. They were doing everything in their power to discredit and undermine Paul, attacking his physical appearance, attacking his eloquence as a speaker, pulling out all of the ethical stops in order to undermine the gospel ministry that Paul had established about five years earlier. Paul's authority had been called into question. And so Paul establishes here at the outset of 1 Corinthians the fact that he is an apostle of Christ. He was called to that office by the will of God and not by the will of man. Now in the Greek language, the original language, apostle simply means someone who is sent out. And at its broadest level of meaning, the word is roughly equivalent to what we would call today a missionary. One who is sent out with the good news of Jesus Christ at his representative. 
And at this broadest level of meaning, it's true to say that every Christian has an apostolic ministry of some kind as we speak to others about the good news of Christ, as we share the good news of the gospel with lost people who desperately need to hear it. But here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is using this word apostle in a more specific and unique sense, and that is critical for us to understand as we look at this letter. You see, in the early church, an apostle was a unique and authoritative office. It was an office that belonged to the twelve disciples of Jesus and also to a small handful of other Christians who were chosen by God to lay the foundation for the New Testament church. In order to be an apostle, in this more narrow sense of the word, this more technical sense, you would need to fulfill several requirements that are outlined for us in the New Testament. According to Peter's instruction in the book of Acts, an apostle needed to be someone who was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, someone who had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. If nothing else, that ought to show us right off the bat here, this office of an apostle was unique to the early church There are no apostles roaming the earth today, no matter what some people and some denominations might claim. The apostolic office was of crucial importance in the early formative years of Christianity because the apostles of Jesus Christ were commissioned to continue the work of Jesus, to speak and to write with the authority of Jesus, and that's one reason why we as Christians recognize the writings of the apostles in our New Testaments to be inspired, to be inerrant part of the Word of God. They are Scripture that cannot be added to and that cannot be subtracted from. When Paul spoke, when Paul wrote, when Peter spoke and wrote, when John spoke and wrote, when all the apostles spoke and wrote, they spoke and they wrote with the very authority of God Himself because it was the Holy Spirit of God speaking through them in a unique authoritative manner that is no longer in evidence today. And once God said what he wanted to say for the sake of future generations of Christians, John, the last of the apostles, died and went home to glory, and the office of the apostle faded from the scene, never to be replicated again because it was no longer needed. To be an apostle, you needed to be, first of all, a witness to the resurrected Christ. And according to the New Testament, The calling of an apostle was also confirmed through supernatural signs and miracles as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Though Paul was not one of the twelve original disciples of Jesus, nor was he the divinely appointed replacement for Judas Iscariot, the New Testament makes it very clear that Paul had the same authority as the twelve disciples and that he'd been given that authority by none other than Jesus Christ himself. The road to Damascus. Paul encountered the resurrected Christ. He was personally commissioned by Jesus to be his apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle who would cross the racial and the ethnic divide between Jew and Greek and who would bring the gospel to the very ends of the Roman Empire. And Paul's apostolic call and gifting was recognized by Peter, James, and John. It was confirmed by miracles. It was confirmed by the fruitfulness of his ministry. There was no doubt whatsoever that Paul was a genuine apostle of Christ. But within the church of Corinth, some of his enemies, some of his opponents were calling those those credentials into question and were thereby undermining the work of the gospel and the work of the church in that city. 
And so Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by reaffirming his apostolic identity and authority, not as someone who had taken this role upon himself in a selfish way, but someone who had been divinely called, someone who is divinely appointed into that office. You know, brothers and sisters, there were people in the early church who did their best to undermine the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. Sadly, the same thing is still happening today in the 21st century. One popular evangelical leader who has openly and brazenly compromised the gospel in the past calendar year started a ministry several years ago called the Red Letter Christians, referring, of course, to the words of Jesus himself, which are sometimes printed in red letters in the English Bible. The implication this leader was making by calling himself and his followers red-letter Christians is that the words in red are more important than the words in black. Put it another way, Jesus' recorded words in the Bible carry more authority than the recorded words of Paul or Peter or James or John and that they should be treated with greater reverence and respect and seriousness. The result of this faulty way of thinking, this flawed theology, is to give the impression that some parts of the Bible are more important, are more authoritative than other parts of the Bible, to give the impression that Jesus' teaching in the Gospels takes priority over Paul's teaching in the Epistles, that we need to take Jesus with the utmost seriousness, but to take Paul with a grain of salt. Especially when Paul the Apostle speaks to us in his letters about the controversial hot-button issues in our culture today, such as gender roles in the home and the church, about homosexuality, about sex outside of marriage, about other uncomfortable subjects like that. Well, Brothers and sisters, let me tell you without any reservation today, every sentence, every word in the Bible carries precisely the same authority whether Jesus said it or whether Paul said it or whether Peter said it, or whether John said it, because every word that your Bible contains was co-authored by the Holy Spirit who breathed those words out to the very letter and the very syllable. So friends, you and I do not have the right to sit smugly in our chair and pick and choose what we want from the Bible in order to create some personalized religion that suits our own fancy and our own moral preferences. You either take all of the Bible or you take none of it. Well, certain members in the Corinthian church did not accept Paul's authority because they did not like what Paul had to say. And the truth is, certain Christians today question Paul's authority for exactly the same reason. Paul's teaching on moral issues, theological issues, crimps our style, it steps on our toes. And so we would in some cases rather marginalize Paul, trivialize Paul, than recognize him as the inspired spokesman of Almighty God. An apostle of God. An apostle of Christ who is called and commissioned, appointed to that authoritative office by the will of God and for the good of the church. Well, Paul begins this letter by establishing his apostolic authority. In verse 1, he mentions another man by the name of Sosthenes. It's quite likely that Paul wrote this letter with the help of a scribe so that Paul dictated the words, he spoke the words, and the scribe or the amanuensis wrote the words down, and Sosthenes is most likely Paul's scribe. It's also quite likely that Sosthenes was one of the early members of the Corinthian church and a man who was converted under Paul's preaching ministry. 
you flip back to Acts 18, you'll notice there in verse 17, the mention of a man named Sosthenes, who was once the ruler of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth. When Paul first entered the city of Corinth, he began his ministry in the Jewish synagogue. But it didn't take long before they got fed up with him. They threw him out on his ear when he kept telling them that Jesus was the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. When they went and threw Paul out of the synagogue, he shook out his garments in a symbolic gesture of divine judgment. He left the synagogue and then he set up shop right next door in a location where he could continue to evangelize the Jewish attendees along with the Greeks and the Romans. It's pretty provocative. Well, wouldn't you know it? Before very long, the ruler of that same synagogue, a man by the name of Crispus, became a Christian. He became a Christian with his whole family. He became one of the founding members of the Corinthian church. That left a gap in the synagogue, of course, and Crispus was quickly replaced by another Jewish leader named Sosthenes. And this man rose up and became a great enemy, a great opponent of Paul, stirring up all kinds of trouble and dissension among the Jewish citizens in Corinth until finally they tried to get Paul in trouble with the Roman authority. When the Roman governor, the Roman proconsul, a man named Gallio, refused to indulge the hostility of these accusers and to throw Paul in jail, the crowd then turned on Sosthenes and started to beat him, presumably because this crowd felt that Sosthenes did not do a good enough job in pressing his case against the Apostle Paul. Well, guess what happened next? Just as Crispus had given his life to Jesus, it seems as though Sosthenes followed in his footsteps turning away from his hostility towards Paul and Christ and instead giving himself fully to the true Messiah, submitting to Jesus as Lord and God. Though we can't be 100% certain that the Sosthenes of Acts 18 is the same Sosthenes of 1 Corinthians 1, I believe the evidence points us strongly in that direction. A former enemy of the Gospel who is transformed by God's grace into one of Paul's closest allies and friends a true partner in the gospel, a reminder for us today, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. God in His sovereignty chose to save two hostile leaders of the Corinthian synagogue. God can choose to save anyone He wants to save, no matter who they are. God even saved a violent religious terrorist named Saul of Tarsus, later known to us as Paul the Apostle. A man who was wonderfully converted while on his way to kill and imprison Christians in the name of a false religious ideology. And if God could save a man like Sosthenes, if God could save a man like Saul of Tarsus, you better believe God can save anyone. He can even save that person who you've written off as a hopeless case. Well, Paul begins this letter to the Corinthian church by establishing his own apostolic identity, his own calling as an apostle. But now in verse 2, he goes on to identify the audience to whom this letter was originally written. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Notice here in verse 2 that Paul identifies the audience as the church of God, recognizing that even though he was the one who planted this church, Paul was the one who established this church some five years earlier, Paul understands he doesn't own this church. 
This isn't the church of Paul. This isn't the church of Apollos. This isn't the church of anyone else. This is the church of God. It is the bride of Christ that met for worship and fellowship in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. In a couple weeks, we're going to see that one of the big problems that faced the church in Corinth was a tendency among the members to divide into factions and to identify with various leaders in the church. The church in Corinth had devolved into a bunch of competing personality cults with some people saying, I follow Paul, others saying, I follow Apollos, others feigning a false religious piety and claiming to follow Christ directly, even though they were just as sinful and schismatic and proud and man-centered as all the rest. Here in verse 2 of his opening greeting, Paul sets the tone for what is to come by reminding these believers that they belong first and foremost to God as members of the church and not to any human leader, not to any human figurehead. In these opening verses, Paul is already distancing himself from the schism, the unhealthy factionalism of the church, and soon enough he will openly rebuke them for this very thing that was threatening to tear the church into pieces. Notice secondly, verse 2, Paul identifies his audience as the church that met in the Greek city of Corinth. I think it's very important when we begin a new study like this to set the book into its larger context to try to understand the original setting, the original culture as very best we can. If we are going to understand Paul's letter to the Corinthians, if we're going to understand the many problems that this church was facing, we need to know some information about the city where they were meeting, the culture that they were living in. So I'm going to take a few moments now to paint a picture for you of what it was like to live in ancient Corinth. You look at a map later this afternoon of Greece, or if you flip to the maps in the back of your study Bible, you will notice that the southern part of Greece is almost like a big island that's connected to the mainland of Europe by a narrow strip of land called an isthmus. And it was on this narrow land bridge that Corinth was located. Because of its location as a strategic and ancient seaport, this city had a long and prestigious history, and many ancient mariners traveling east would bring their ships into the Corinthian harbor, they would unload the merchandise, they would transport the merchandise across the four-mile strip of land, they would load it into another ship on the other side, and that ship would continue sailing east to the Mediterranean. Or if the ships were going west, they would do the opposite process. And in some cases, they would actually put small boats on rollers and would roll the the boat across the four miles of land. Though today they have uh, dug a canal and you can go through a canal in that part of Greece. Now this shortcut through the city of Corinth made it possible for the sailors and the merchants to save a great deal of time and money and also to avoid sailing around a notoriously dangerous part of the island, the southern Cape of Greece, where many ships sank and where many sailors had lost their lives. In the ancient world, Corinth was the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. It was the place where the Roman proconsul was stationed. And during Paul's day, as we already mentioned, his name was Gallio. He played a vital role in protecting the apostle from Sosthenes and the Jews who were trying to run him out of town before the church had been established. Intellectually, Corinth always played second fiddle to Athens, but materially, this city was second to none. 
was a metropolitan city full of wealthy patrons, wealthy merchants who had lots of extra money to spare. In terms of its culture, its entertainment, Corinth was renowned for sporting events, in particular the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the ancient Olympics and attracted thousands of visitors and tourists to the city each year. But what really put ancient Corinth on the map was its loose sense of morality. The moral climate in ancient Corinth was renowned throughout the empire, so much so that a new verb was actually introduced into the Greek language in honor of this city. To Corinthianize. To Corinthianize meant in the Greek language of that day to commit adultery and fornication, to indulge in all manner of sexual sin and licentiousness. As we're going to see in our study Throughout this study, this part of the Corinthian culture had percolated into the church itself so that sexual sin was rampant in the church, even accepted among the Christians in the church as a normal and acceptable part of life. Now part of the moral problem in Corinth had to do with the religion that was practiced in the city by the ancient Greeks and Romans. You see, on a hill, the Acropolis, just on the outskirts of the city, was a temple built in honor of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, or Venus as she is sometimes called, the Greek goddess of love. And in honor of this Greek goddess, the ancient historian Strabo tells us that upwards of a thousand prostitutes, both male and female, were on hand during the day to service the worshippers who would go up to the temple and that the prostitutes would then descend into the city every night where there would never be a shortage of patronage from wealthy travelers and citizens. Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world. It was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. One German scholar described the culture of Corinth in this way. I printed it for you in your bulletin. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior, who recognized no law but his own desires. And I wonder this morning, friends, when you hear that description of the culture, the climate, the value system in ancient Corinth, whether you are reminded of any other culture. A culture that values individual liberty and personal autonomy at any price. A culture that is materialistic to the core and obsessed with money and possessions and prestige. A culture that sees sexual license, sexual experimentation as the ultimate form of human freedom to which every other freedom must humbly bow. A culture that is obsessed with sports and recreation to the point where many treat it as a religion. A hedonistic culture that sees human pleasure as the greatest good, the most profitable pursuit. Can't speak for you guys this morning, but it sure sounds familiar to me. Because to me, it sounds precisely like the culture we are living in today. Here in Canada. In the United States. In Europe. 
a pleasure-seeking, materialistic, sex-obsessed, individualistic culture where the greatest good sought after by the average citizen is to experience the most amount of pleasure, the most amount of self-satisfaction before you die and go into the ground and fade into a meaningless oblivion of nothing. Welcome to Corinth, friends. I hope you enjoy your stay. Now, perhaps here in Niagara, in other more rural parts of our country, we might be slightly sheltered, we might be slightly protected from the most blatantly immoral aspects of our culture, but go to any major city in this country and you will think you have walked into ancient Corinth. Go to Montreal. Walk down St. Catherine Street as I did regularly for eight years and you will marvel at how there could possibly be so many customers to keep the dozens of strip clubs and massage parlors and escort services in business day after day after day. Go to any university dormitory in this country, such as the one I lived in a decade ago at the University of Guelph, you will think that you have walked into ancient Corinth, a debauched, depraved culture of hedonism that glorifies all manner of sin and vice. And as someone who grew up in a very sheltered, very conservative home and church environment in Niagara region, I could hardly believe what I saw and experienced in my first week of university. As I look around the culture we are now living in, friends, as I see the complete moral chaos that is unleashed all around us, the world that my children are going to grow up in, the world that my grandchildren are going to grow up in, my heart breaks for Western civilization. We are on the brink of destruction. I'm sure that Paul's heart broke too. When he first entered into that city, when he had a look around that city, he saw an entire city, an entire civilization looking for pleasure, looking for satisfaction on the broad road that would lead them directly to an eternity in hell. It was into this culture, it was into this moral climate that the Corinthian church was born around the year A.D. 50 a great light in a city of darkness. And I'm sure a great encouragement in those early years for Paul. But then the time came for Paul to leave the city, to move on to a new ministry opportunity in Ephesus, and it wasn't long before the discouraging report started to trickle in of moral lapses that had occurred within the Corinthian church. And so Paul, the founding pastor, wrote a letter to them in response to some of the news that he'd heard, reminding those believers to abstain from adultery and from all other forms of sexual immorality and to walk in a manner that was worthy of their calling. But instead of receiving encouragement, instead of receiving news of their repentance, Paul only received more reports of trouble and dissension within the church, and that prompted him to write a second letter, which is the one we're studying now. It's a little confusing. 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to this church, but the first letter we no longer have. It has been lost. Unfortunately, this epistle, this letter called 1 Corinthians, did not fix the problems in the church. And so Paul decided to leave his ministry in Ephesus and visit Corinth in person. It was a painful, sorrowful visit where Paul rebuked the church sharply and where he was terribly mistreated, he was verbally abused by some of the church members. Well, Paul had enough and he left. He went back to Ephesus. He wrote them a third letter sometimes called the severe letter by scholars, which was closely followed by 2 Corinthians. 
In total, the Apostle Paul wrote four letters to this church in an effort to clean up the mess. He made three personal visits, sometimes sending Timothy and Titus on his behalf. No church caused Paul the Apostle so much trouble as this one. No group of Christians had treated him so poorly, so disrespectfully. Which is why I find his words in verses 2 and 3 so remarkable. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Even though the members of this church were not acting like genuine followers of Christ, in some cases they were behaving even worse than the Roman pagans around them, it is remarkable that Paul does not begin his letter by laying into them, by giving them the rebuke that they all deserved. Rather, Paul begins this letter by reminding the believers in Corinth about who they are. Reminding them of their true identity as followers of Christ. What's true about these disobedient Christians, according to verse 2, is that they are sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Just in case you're wondering, Paul is not speaking there in verse 2 about their behavior when he calls them saints. He is speaking to them about their position in Christ. Their new identity. Their true identity in Christ. That little word saint has been so abused, it's been so twisted over the years, it's hard for us to grasp today what it truly means in the biblical sense, how Paul can possibly use the word saint and the word Corinthian in the same sentence. Today when we think about saints, when we talk about saints, most of us either think about some great leader in the Catholic Church that has been officially recognized by the Pope. Perhaps we think about a person who has become well known for their moral behavior. But in the biblical sense of the word, sainthood is not something we achieve by our hard work and our human effort. Sainthood is something that we are made, something that we are given by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. It is not something we achieve through human merit. It's a status that is conferred upon us by God's grace. In the biblical sense, the word saint simply means Christian. Saint means Christian. A saint is someone who has been made holy through the blood of Christ, who has been set apart for the glory of God. That's what the Greek word literally means. It means to be set apart. So, brothers and sisters, if God in His sovereign grace has opened your blinded eyes, has enabled you to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, has raised you out of His out of your tomb of sin into new life with Him, if God has done that for you, if you have responded to that call in repentance and faith, then you are a saint. We are the saints. The saints of Rosedale Baptist Church called effectually, called savingly by the Holy Spirit and through the sovereign grace of God to be part of His church on earth. Called to join with all the other saints across the world in calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Lord, the only Savior that God has provided to rescue this fallen, broken human race. By the grace of God, I'm a saint. By the grace of God, you're a saint. If you belong to Jesus Christ, we are saints. We are holy in the eyes of God. We are holy because of our union with Jesus Christ. The problem is, though, that sometimes we don't act that way. The truth is that even though we are all called to be saints, we sometimes don't act like saints. Just like some presidents don't act very presidential, like some kings don't act very kingly, like some fathers don't act very fatherly, like some mothers don't act very motherly. 
And guess what? Sometimes Christians don't act very Christ-like. And sometimes we don't live up very well to the glorious name we've been called to represent. You know what, brothers and sisters? In spite of our many failures, our many flaws, we must never forget who we truly are with respect to Christ. And that's what Paul, Paul is doing here in these opening verses. He's doing this for these sinful, rebellious Corinthian Christians. He is reminding them of their true identity. He's reminding them of their exalted position in Christ in the hopes that they will become what they already are. And that's really what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is becoming what you are. It's learning to live more and more in the light of your true and your new identity in Christ. And aren't you thankful this morning, brothers and sisters, there is hope for imperfect Christians. That means there's hope for me. There's hope for you. There's hope for all of us to grow and to mature in Christ, to look more and more like our Father in Heaven as we learn more and more to love and to obey and to submit to His Son. Christian friend, born again by God's Spirit, you must understand today from God's Word, God sees you as righteous. Not because you are a lovely or perfect person. He sees you as righteous because you have been united to a lovely person. You have been united to Jesus Christ who is lovely, who is perfect in every way. And when God the Father looks on you, Christian, He doesn't accept you because you are sinless. He accepts you because He sees the perfect sinless righteousness of Christ who died in your place for your sins. The perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. It has been credited to your account. Now to be sure, Paul the Apostle is not going to end here. He's got plenty more to say to these Corinthian Christians and not all of it is going to be pleasant. But this is where Paul begins. And this is where we need to begin too. To begin with with the truth of our identity in Christ as men and women who have been called to be saints. And so saints of Rosedale Baptist Church, saints who are living in Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.